0: Hey folks, David Lennock here. The show has taken a break for the holidays, so we've selected a couple of our most popular episodes from 2023 to run for the next few weeks. Don't worry though, we'll be back with new content in the new year. In the meantime, have a happy holiday and enjoy these classic episodes of Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich
1: and Famous. Hosted by WealthManagement.com Senior Editor, David Lennock.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous. My name is David Lennock. I'm a Senior Editor at WealthManagement.com and a licensed attorney, and I'll be your host. For anyone new to the podcast, in each installment, myself and a guest take on a different celebrity estate and attempt to extract some key lessons that planners can apply to their more traditional clients the idea being that celebrity estate planning catastrophes, although often ridiculous in their details, generally have at their cores very basic issues that can just as easily apply to non-famous or fabulously wealthy clients. We're once again joined today by Kelly Wolfington. Kelly is a senior wealth strategist at SCI Private Wealth Management, and she provides holistic advice in the areas of trust and estate planning, wealth transfer, philanthropy, succession planning, tax planning, and family communication strategies for ultra-high net worth and high net worth individuals and families. Her responsibilities include collaborating with internal and external colleagues and partners to craft and deliver such advice, as well as deliver strategies, techniques, tools, and materials related to these advisory areas. She helps facilitate a perpetual process to improve her clients' conditions by working with them to navigate goals, values, and visions for themselves, their families, and their communities. Thanks so much for joining us again, Kelly.
2: Thank you for having me again, David. I look forward to this discussion.
0: You know, the last time we had Kelly on, I was just joking about this with her off uh, off mic, but um, you know, we, we talked about Vince McMahon of the WWE, and uh, about two seconds after that recording wrapped, all of the unsavory sexual allegations levied against him came out. So let's just hope that this episode's subject doesn't suffer the similar fate and we're not dealing with some sort of Wolfington celebrity estate
2: planning curse going on here. Fingers crossed, David.
0: <laughs> so... That subject is a model actress, Julia Fox. Now, now don't go rushing to Google. Julia Fox is still very much alive and well. Uh, However, the uncut gem star recently went viral for posting a tour of her uh, apartment for her 1.6 million TikTok followers. Um, However, far from the expected display of over-the-top opulence that we've been conditioned to expect from that sort of thing, Fox lives in a modest two-bedroom apartment that she characterizes as very underwhelming. That's a direct quote. In the video, she says, I know I'm going to get roasted or whatever, but hopefully someone can watch this and think, okay, maybe I'm not doing so bad. And she goes on to explain that she's uncomfortable with excessive displays of wealth. Now, someone that grew up with shows like MTV Cribs and the whole Bravo and People Magazine milieu in general, I, like many, have been largely conditioned to associate an appropriately showing living situation as basically table stakes amongst the ultra and high net worth. And even amongst the merely wealthy, A great deal of most families' wealth is tied up in their homes. But this trend is changing among the younger generations, with high net worth millennials like Julia Fox increasingly shying away from spending their money on luxury homes. Kelly, what are some of the reasons for this growing trend? And perhaps more importantly, what are the planning connotations for advisors to these clients?
2: Great questions, David. Uh, So when I saw Julia Fox's um, video and then read some of the articles afterwards, I thought it was really interesting because it is something that we are seeing. You know, One of the, what I would say in terms of one of the big reasons is millennials, they have a, a different value set that they're really, they look for sustainability. They look for how can I not make an environmental. And so I think sustainability, minimalism, we've heard those about millennials, those terms about millennials for quite some time now. Um, I think back 10 years ago, when the discussion was around the, the artwork or the furniture, it used to be that you'd want heavy pieces that were carried over from generation to generation. Then back then, 10 plus years ago, kids, kids so to speak, were looking for Ikea pieces or things that would be easy to move around, something that you know that was not quite as big. And so it's actually really interesting to see like it's carrying forward in terms of the, the big houses. They no longer want those big homes. Um, they're worried about what they're going to do to the environment. They're, they're worried about, um, you know, having a large home and, and consuming tons of energy. Um, and the planning connotations are pretty numerous in terms of that. Uh, when when I look at some of the millennial clients that I've been working with over the past few years in terms of planning, they have a lot more uh, philanthropy in their planning than some of the older generation that it's, they may have children or they may be expecting children, but they also want to take care of their friends. They want to take care about the causes that they believe in. And it's usually it, when you're in your 20s and 30s, you don't always think about that Uh, I used to see that more with the folks that were in their 70s and 80s and saw their kids grown.
0: Mm -hmm. So I think it's important to to just point out that that there's obviously a larger uh, millennial home ownership, uh, I don't know if I want to call it a crisis, something going on where millennials aren't able to buy homes. This is a separate but related sort of branch of that, Right
1: where
0: yes. they're not simply buying homes later. These are people who couldn't afford to buy homes, Correct. who are choosing not to. These are not millennials who have master's degrees but are still working for $15 an hour.
2: Yes, exactly. These are <laughs> the millennials that I'm speaking of are the ones that either, ha- either have inherited, are going to inherit, or have created significant wealth. Wow. You know, If you look at the millennial generation as a whole, what I would say is that, yes, like the millennials grew up during the Great Recession, so, some and they have a lot of student debt. They have a lot of they have a lot of worries on their. As a whole, the broad generation does, mm-hmm. but the millennials of the uber wealthy, so to speak, it, it's a little bit different. It's as a whole, I think that millennials do. They value experience over material goods. Um, they do really care for what what the world looks like and leaving the world a better place. Um, but the uber wealthy or, or just the wealthy in general, the millennials of that class, that statute, that stature, they they still believe in that.
0: Even though they have the means to, to do otherwise, Correct. it's interesting. So just starting with sort of a basic planning question here, I think um, it's not going to shock anyone that, I mean, for most of time, right, that your home and your sort of land, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. if, if possible, has sort of always been sort of considered like, this is the best place to put your money, the safest investment you have, the largest portion of most families' assets, the largest asset most families own. If you are a high net worth person, you have a high net worth client who is not devoting a large chunk of their assets to this you know, sort of easy answer almost for an advisor of like where to put your money, right? Right. What do you do? Where, what are some other options for using that money? Putting it to work in a sim- at least a similarly effective, safe way as having it in real estate.
2: Oh a lot of our clients on the investment side, especially in that in that generation, they're looking for um, ESG, more sustainability type investments. Um, So they're looking for, they're looking to match their investments to what their beliefs are. So Mm -hmm. they want the ESG investments. They want things that when I first got into this industry 25 years ago, it was, we would screen portfolios for alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. And now there are, every single class has some kind of version of a sustainability or an environment investment process. And so it's actually really interesting to see that because they're, they're, again, this goes back to they're putting their money where their values are. Their purchases Mm -hmm. are being made based on their values and not based on, you know, kind of what their wants are.
0: Yeah, and I think, um, you know, ESG is obviously just like the buzzword, right? It's basically, you know, amongst advisors. But it's one of those buzzwords where it can kind of mean anything in a weird way, I've noticed, where you'll find ESG lists where like some, I think most people like, you know, when people think of like the woke mob and that sort of stuff, they're they're really thinking of like the E and the S. Yeah, but a lot of terms in terms of successful investments and and things that are gonna you know sort of actually do well for you. It's it's the G that is sort sure. of the capital letter involved in there. And uh, you know, ESG can sort of in many ways be molded to what your client wants it to mean. I've seen ESG lists of the best oil companies. Yes. which is like almost made my head explode, right? But it makes sense when you think of it's capital G small E S.
2: Well, and also, I, I think if oil companies are a great example, where there are some oil companies that will advocate that they're trying to find more sustainable energy sources, um, but the governance is a really big piece. We're also in a time where and the millennials grew up in this time where they're more, they're more inclusive, they're more diverse, um, and they want to they want to uh, forward that progress, and so they are really doing a good job and making kind of holding all of our feet to the fire when it comes to that and on the governance side it is important i work with a number of clients that are that really believe that their team needs to have diversity that um, want to make sure that there's diversity within sei that wants to make sure that the people that are making decisions on behalf of the company that affects Mm -hmm. them does reflect the diversity and the inclusion that is necessary for that forward progress
0: yeah. And ultimately we've come a very long way, I guess, since uh, yes. that sort of sin, sin screening that, that you mentioned earlier, this idea of just like no tobacco companies. I mean, even still, we still, people still do that. That's still completely reasonable. But, you oh, know, there's definitely. more. Like we mentioned with the oil companies, like as long as, as if you accept that that is a necessary evil in this world that's going to exist regardless, then you can pick the lesser of the evils, right? The one that's always trying to do the good and I feel okay about that decision, depending on, you know, what your values necessarily are.
2: Yeah, and to your point in terms of the governance like what does what does their board look like what does their mm-hmm. senior leadership look like do they have do they have underrepresented um underrepresented minorities on the, on their board or is it 90% 60-year-old white men mm-hmm. so that's that's part of the whole governance piece is making sure that that diversity is is part of um the company's ethos
0: mm-hmm. so i think one of the more negative stereotypes uh, about sort of millennials is that they care for causes, but it's sort of a, there's sort of a level of dilettantism where yes. um, they're looking for, they just care about causes <laughs> as opposed to a cause that actually right. matters to them. They just want to care about something. A, have you experienced that with the clients you work with? Or is that just sort of your know, hogwash? And B, I mean, how do you really get down to, I mean, if you have someone who's just like a cause head? Um, how do you really boil down to like what the, the one they should really be putting their weight behind is?
2: So to answer the first question, no, I would say that I have not encountered that within my clients and their Mm -hmm. families. Um, I do think that they really do, um, they do put their money where their mouth is and they really do believe like they're walking the walk. So Mm -hmm. they, they truly believe in it. They want to put, they want to make purchases based on. The, their values and their decisions behind that, and so they aren't just cause heads. Um, I, there are plenty of those people out there. We all know that, but most of the clients that I work with certainly are not, because again, I think we mentioned this previously. I work with a lot of first generational wealth, mm-hmm. first generational wealth creators, and their children. You know, they saw their families grow there, or their families really grew up in that wealth creation. And so um, some of our families, the, the first generation are saying, we work hard and we expect you to work hard so that you can do the fun things like giving back so that you can make sure that you are giving to the charities or the organizations that mean something to you. And I think that a lot of them are also taking it a step further by saying, I'm not like, I'm going to choose my advisors. I'm going to choose my team based on where, what means something to me. You know, I don't want to have I don't want to have an organization that um, does not believe in the diver- D- Dei diversity equity and inclusion um, I want to make sure that my team represents something that looks like me or something that that looks like the world that I want to create so it's actually been really interesting to kind of see that genesis of clients over the past two plus decades
0: Um it's, it's, really, and- it's really interesting that you bring that up because I think we spent a lot of time on this show sorry to interrupt. Yep. Nope. Um, talking about sort of multi-generational wealthy families and sort of how to successfully pass on, you know, capital V values.
2: Okay. Um,
0: but this is sort of the other side of that coin, right? Where it's instead of struggling to, against affluenza and sort of how do we pass on these values to these kids who have never had to work a day in their life? Um, this is the other side where it's like, well, I've, they've seen it. They've seen what it's like to work hard. They know. And so they're close enough to it to not have to have the values passed on. They just, they have them, they've witnessed them. They've, they've earned them themselves.
2: You, you would hope so. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> <for sure. laughs> I, I can't say that's always the case, but you certainly Uh-oh. hope that that, that is. Um, but it's what we have seen or what I have seen in my practice is really that it's the communication that helps pass those values on. It's telling stories. It's, um, you know, this is the adversity that perhaps you don't remember that we had to make a decision as a family that was really hard on us at the time. This is why we made it and this is what has come from it. And that's mm-hmm. where you can really pass on those values.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, that's where you're able to make children more comfortable with the wealth.
0: So this is a bit of an odd question, maybe, because this is a larger trend than this. But and, and since you where does the pandemic factor into all of this? You know, I know the housing market went a little insane and we're still sort of seeing it sort of flop all over the place. And just also just the... The trauma of the pandemic in general. I mean, what role has that played in changing or accelerating or decelerating? What have you seen that, that you feel like that's done to this trend?
2: Well, one of the things that I would say the millennials have done a really good job at as a whole since they entered the workforce. Um, I am so, I am, you know, straight in Gen X. We are the lost generation, we're the mm-hmm. forgotten generation. But I look at what the millennials have done since I've entered the workforce and since they've gotten in as well. They want work life balance. So the pandemic has probably accelerated that. Yep. And I, I'd say that they've done, they did a great job advocating for it before. And because of the pandemic and because of their, because of their advocating, it's here to stay. The work-life yeah. balance is really important for people and employers are recognizing that.
0: Yeah. It's all about that freedom, right? I mean, yes. you know, maintaining, you're know, caring about things beyond your immediate surroundings you know whether that's you know things in other countries travel, you know, the maintaining a small footprint so that you can yeah. actually do those things reasonably without having to worry about the massive uh, undertaking you've left at home.
2: Right, and and also when you get back to the whole, you also asked about real estate when you get when you get back to the whole real estate issue too. You you're seeing a, a spread, you know, where suburbia used to be within 20 minutes or a half mm-hmm. hour, maybe even an hour of a major city. And because of that flexibility, because of the work-life balance that has been um, that has been advocated for, and really, you're seeing people that are—they might work for a company that's based in New York, and they live five hours away, six hours away, or they—you know—it's more comfortable for them to find uh, a place with more land that is a further commute. Like it's not as much of a concern for them because they know either they can work remotely or
0: they do work remotely yeah i mean this is as a new yorker this is something that i mean i'm extremely acutely aware of even on my own team um you know funny at the beginning of the pandemic barbados ran one of these several countries did it but they sort of wanted to drum up tourism so they they ran this sort of program to give temporary visas to young people to sort of hey come work from barbados come work here right. for a year, and see if you know, hopefully they stay or whatever. And one of our reporters wanted to do that and he was not allowed to because it was like, oh, that's insane. What are you doing? You can't work in Barbados. <laughs> By the end of the pandemic end in so many scare quotes, um, you know, we had, one of our editors had moved out to California. We hired someone from Indianapolis. You know, it was just like over two years, it went from like, this is insane to like, oh yeah, who cares?
2: Yes, you can work <laughs> from anywhere. It's been proven. I mean, we were we were literally shut in for months. I had, I had a not even a two year old at the time home with me. Oh wow. And okay. I was working full time. Like there is there is that ability to do that. And companies recognize like we our employers are going our employees are going to do better work when we give them that opportunity.
0: So I mean in terms of real estate then, does that make it seem like more of a foolish purchase, I guess, to, to buy something opulent in the city or is it just there's more options as opposed <laughs> to <them> being more <laughs>
2: Yeah, I would say it gives you more options because, it, you know, you in New York City, perhaps you don't have to be, um, you know, it, you, you still want to be in the city because that's what you thrive on. Mm-hmm. And you want to have that experience of living in a city um, and you probably need more space than anything else. Like instead of a, if you're a solo practitioner you know, and you're, you're single, no children, perhaps you need um, a, a two bedroom because or a one bedroom plus a den. Because you need just a little bit more space to um, to actually give yourself that separation of work and state, so to speak, or mm. you know, home and work. Um, I I think I saw that a little bit. Certainly, I'm outside of the Philadelphia area, and people were moving um, moving to not necessarily in new neighborhoods, but they just said, I, I need I need a room for me, and I need a room for my spouse or my roommate or my partner. Um, and we need, but we also need to have a little bit more space just so that we're not, I I don't wake up and I see my computer. So I think it had kind of a different, I, I think that's why we saw the real estate market really go through the roof, you know, first, because people could, people didn't have to commute. So that, that time frame was no longer in their thought process. And then second, a lot of people needed more space um, because they did want that separation.
0: mm mm-hmm. So one of the interesting things uh, about you know, Julia Fox specifically that she said, um, a lot of what we've been talking about is sort of generational values and those sorts of things. Um, and it's more sort of, I'd rather do this than that. But uh, she actually said that she's uncomfortable with excessive displays of wealth. That's, that's a much more negative connotation rather than I would rather put this towards causes I care about, yeah. you know, as opposed to, I don't, I actively don't like this. Um, what role does that play in any of this? And where does that maybe come from as much as we can speculate about an entire generation of people?
2: I, I, you're right. rightly, like, it is speculation, but I think some of it could come from guilt. I've seen that a lot in some of my families where, you know, there's, there's guilt around the wealth because not, not because of where it came from instead, because there is so much excess wealth there that they feel as though they can do more for other people. Um, or, you know, they they feel guilty because they have the ability to do a lot more than than one of their neighbors or their friends do. Yeah. Um, and in Julia Fox, it's it she grew up not wealthy. Yeah. So for her, she wants to she wants to transcribe her um, her upbringing onto her son. I mean, she made a specific comment around that that we don't need to repeat, but you know it's it was really interesting because you do hear that a lot from our from our clients where i don't want to mess up my children so you know we have we have significant excess wealth that we're never going to spend and our children are never going to spend so how do we how do we make sure that we don't mess them up that they are um, that they are contributing members of society in some way and it it doesn't have to be about helping other people Certainly, like that's a great way to educate family members about family wealth. The way that the way that I really look at it too is, you know, you are you, you should look at your family as a business, and so you're not going to if you have a succession plan in place, which most families, uh, most of our families do, their children are going to inherit their wealth. You know, you you still have to do all the training. You don't mm-hmm. make the intern the next CEO. Yeah so how do you do that and you you level set you educate you communicate you tell stories that's how you pass the values along um you know julia fox still probably flies private even if she doesn't like the even if she doesn't, she's, she doesn't
0: show you the tiktok of that though yeah
2: exactly exactly and that's great good for her i mean if she doesn't good for her too it's it's a personal choice um and i think like in in terms of that she doesn't. She gets to do with her wealth what she wants. She gets to do with her life what she wants. Um, so I embrace her ideology. I embrace like her goal of raising her child in a in a world that's you know it, it does not show the excess wealth that she has. Um, but there are other people that want to want to enjoy the you know the spoils of their labor. So again, good for them. Um, I think it's all about it, it's all about expressing what how you feel. And allowing the family members, the friends to also participate in um, in that discussion. Mm-hmm.
0: And it's the advisor's job to get them to actually do that.
2: Yes. You know, yes, in, it in, definitely in a
0: way that's constructive and actually actionable.
2: Yes. Yes. This goes back to even our last conversation um, around, you know, values in a family. Yeah. Um, that that's a great way to actually talk to to your children. Um, about the decisions that you've made and why you've made them, um, and to bring up like this is this is my value and this is how I live my value, or my set of values. And it is—it's well, our—it's our job to to kind of make those conversations easier. It's our job to catalyze those conversations. Um, here at SEI, we like to say that we embrace a culture of conversation, and that's why.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, honestly, that's. It's, I could probably just rename this podcast celebrity communication you know, yeah. just, because it seems like every episode, you know, our sort of message is just like, and after all that, 20 minutes of talking communicate with your client, yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's it happens that way for a reason because the only way you can get you know, down to these deep values and the things that actually, you know, where you can add value to your client. Cause you know, actually know things about them and what they like and don't like is by talking to them, is by having an actual human relationship with them. Crazy.
2: Well, there's no, I wholeheartedly agree. Like there's no doubt about that because you can't, I even think I'm, I'm not on the investment side. I was, you know, yeah. generations, a generation ago, but, you know, even on the investment side, you can't really put together an asset allocation without knowing what, a client's goals and objectives are. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's all good and well to say like here check this box and we'll come up with you know what your asset allocation should be based on numbers. That's not really what that's not that's not good planning. Um and that's not actually getting into the heart of of your relationship with your client. Yeah. Getting into the heart of the relationship with your client is knowing what are their fears about their children? What are your fears about your grandchildren? What are your fears about you know, what this, what this wealth looks like. Um, and it is based on conversations. It is based on communication and it's our job to help through that and make it so it's not as emotional.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's important to point out that that's not a new thing. What you just no. said, that was never good planning, even, even when no. it used to be, you <laughs> no. know, you know, the, the predominant thing before, you know, the march of the machines showed up yes. and, and made people start thinking about the human aspect of things and forced people to actually do good planning. Um, but it's you know, just because they're forced to actually engage with it now doesn't mean that that was at some point considered good planning. This was no. always the mm-hmm. <laughs> better way to do it,
2: yes, wholeheartedly agree, yeah, right it, it was to your point, like no, that was never a good idea. um it was the it was the easiest way to quantify the discussions that mm-hmm. you' were having with your clients
1: um
2: yes. and show that you were doing like you were doing what was in their best interest and um, but no, it's it is. The more that you know your clients, the more that they feel comfortable talking to you about all of those things that we discussed, like that, those fears, the anxiety, um, the more good work that we can do as advisors.
0: Well, that's about all the time we have. I'd like to thank Kelly Wolfington for once again being an awesome guest and really taking us through uh, some difficult topics, I think, to really quantify. Some of this stuff is hard to wrestle with because it can be so mushy depending on the clients. So thanks so much for coming on, Kelly.
2: David, thank you so much for having me on again. Uh, Certainly enjoyed the conversation.
0: And for all our listeners, I'll see you, or I guess you'll hear me, on the next episode of
1: Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous. Thank you for listening to the Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous podcast. Click the subscribe button below to become notified when new episodes become available.